Let's spend some time in God's holy word. Looking for a sign in God's holy word. So let's start hearing those stories new and old. From these two brothers, hot takes and fear that's cold. They go together like pasta and meatballs. They're undeterred, bringing you God's holy word. What is up, everybody? Uh, welcome to the inaugural episode of uh, the Grain Offering. And uh, this is my brother, Jeremy. Jeremy, say hi. Hello. To hey. Hello. Hey. Um, I got to compliment you on your background, man. The, the bookshelf is a very nice uh, aesthetic. So <laughs> I can't take too much of a compliment. Um, most of these books are my wife's. So mm -hmm. I see. <laughs> but it makes you look smart. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, so Jeremy, we, uh, we are starting this brand new thing called the grain offering, and this is our very mm -hmm. first episode. Um, and, uh, the reason why we've started it, uh, is because I've been looking for an excuse to have you on Thursday's theology. And, uh, I realized that Thursday's theology, the, the weekly show might not be the best avenue for, for you to be participating in. So I thought, what can I do to include my my lovely younger brother Jeremy in on these <laughs> conversations? And uh, we were talking. We're just like, what if we drank a beer and and talked about the Bible? Thus, the grain offering was born. The grain offering, the name comes from the Levitical law, uh, talking about how to prepare grain offerings for for sacrifice. And of course, beer comes from grain, hence grain offering so our offering is this show talking about the books of the bible <laughs> <laughs> so we are calling this the grain offering for better or for worse um we'll see how it goes uh but jeremy we are going to be discussing the pentateuch for the first few episodes of the grain mm -hmm. offering so we're going to kick off uh this inaugural episode by talking about genesis now before we dive into genesis uh what beer have you chosen to pair with the book of genesis all right with the book of genesis i've decided to pair a good old amber ale, fat tire, mm -hmm. um, conveniently picked up at any of your local stores mm -hmm. um, with masks, of course, right now. Yes. Um, I just think that fat tire is going to really pair well with the theology we find in the book of Genesis. Mm. And I'm going to circle back and ask you specifically how later on in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> good. It'll take that long for me to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, I have a, uh, I didn't realize it was going to be this big of a beer, uh, but this is why, why, or sorry, <clears throat> let me get my German out. Wein Stefaner, Wein Stefaner Vitas, <laughs> Wein Stefaner Vitas. And the reason I chose this one is because it is, uh, it comes from one of the oldest recorded uh, breweries still in production uh, from the Ruhr, Val Ruhr Valley in Germany. Um, so I thought, we're talking about Genesis, the, the history of the Israelite people. And I thought, huh, a historic beer. That would be great. So this is one of the oldest beers in production. It started as a monastery. Uh, so we... Uh, a beer started as a monastery, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so this is the thing. <laughs> if, we, uh, if we participate by drinking in beer, we're not heretics. We're just participating in our old monastic tradition. So <laughs> Right, right. Uh, which actually brings up a good question uh, to, to answer before we, you know, even dive into this, Jeremy. And that is, is it okay for us to be drinking and talking about the Bible? 
Yes. <laughs> cool. Um, and for more specific answer, um, Jesus, his first miracle was turning water into wine. Mm -hmm. um, wine and other um, fermented drinks were easily the safest thing to drink in biblical times. Mm -hmm. So Jesus probably sat around with his disciples um, drinking wine, talking together, breaking bread. Mm -hmm. um, and not probably there is, a, you know, a sacrament based, <laughs> based around that. So, um, you know, anything in, in excess is bad, but Ecclesiastes does say there is a, a time for and place for everything under the sun. So mm. um, I don't see any, any problem with, with what we're doing. So. Sure. And I echo that too. Cause like, I think that what, the, there's no problem in consuming alcohol. The problem becomes when there's an excess of consumption, because mm -hmm. if you look at the, the biblical narrative, every bad thing can be attributed to excess of something. So a sinful lifestyle often is the result of indulgences and excess of certain things, whether it's greed, whether it's alcohol, whether it's whatever it may be, the excess of something leads to, to sin. So for instance, the excess of alcohol leads to drunkenness. And I'm not, I would, wouldn't be uh, far-fetched to think that if you look on, on YouTube or whatever and Google in, you know, drunken fails or whatever, chances are you're going to find them, right? Uh, and that's because the, the excess of consumption of alcohol leads to stupid decisions. It leads to impairment and judgment and all these things. So the Bible is very clear that drunkenness does cause a lot of really bad things, but it doesn't prohibit the act of drinking itself. It just prohibits the excess of drinking. So, and to build on the, the excess idea, just for any of you out there wondering, like, is that even legit for any of you wondering that, um, you know, Lord's prayer, this give us today our daily bread. And you look at the Israelites in the desert um, told the to store uh, not, to not more than they need right um, of the manna from heaven so right god provides for us and um yeah you're you're skipping ahead man that's that's for next next time's episode that's for the exodus story right right my bad well we'll cut this part out <laughs> sure so um the once again this is the first episode of the grain offering and uh jeremy it's time to to crack open our beers uh cheers one another and uh let's dive into to Genesis. So I'm going to try and do this on camera. Let's see. Aha, there we go. All right. You win this week. <laughs> All right. Cheers, oh. brother. All right. Let's see. First, there we go. First sip. That's a cool shot. Just <laughs> That's really good. This nice. is the first time I've ever had this. This is, that's very good. Wow, man. Those monks know, know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> very good very um artisanal right here <laughs> right right <laughs> um all right so uh i have my notes in front of me just so, to make sure that we stay on track right um <laughs> you know just in case uh okay so we're talking about genesis today we're gonna start off in the book of genesis the very first book of the bible um this this book has so many stories that are the iconic sunday school stories um, so we're going to dive a little bit into it, see see what's behind them, see the overview of the book, all that stuff. Because I think if we, uh, and you know this, Jeremy, from from talking with me, I'm a history 
person. So mm-hmm. I think very contextually. So what I have a problem with is when a lot of these biblical stories are kind of taken out of their historical context and just kind of boiled down to this, like, what can we, what, like, what, um, what metaphor can we pull out of it or what uh, truth can we pull from it so that we yeah. can feel good? What moral nugget? Exactly. Exactly. So these stories end up fitting our needs as opposed to informing how we live, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, all right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the context of Genesis, the book itself, the authorship, the date, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, the author, <laughs> according to this uh, particular um, <laughs> set of, of notes I have, uh, which was compiled by, by some of the research I've been doing, um, an overwhelming majority of people say that the author of Genesis is Moses. So uh, Moses is thought to have written pretty much the entire Pentateuch, but there's a little bit of issue with that, right, Jeremy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Well, I'll let you finish um, finish off the the information you're going to share, and then we'll pick it apart. I think. Sure. All right. That's probably a, an easier easier approach. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Okay. So uh, the the author is supposedly Moses. The periods uh, that it covers the the book from the Genesis chapter one to Genesis chapter fifty, which is how many chapters are in the book. Uh, is approximately 4,000 BC to 1800 BC, which spans over the course of about 2,200 years. And it is thought to have been written in, in, in and around 1430 BC, which is during the Exodus, which we'll talk about you know next time. But it's thought to have been written during the Exodus. So um, as we were preparing for the show and doing our, our pre-show warm-up and conversation and stuff like this, uh, you said you're probably going to have some issues with some of these notes. <laughs> <laughs> that Yes, yes, uh, that's true. I think yeah. tr- tradition does, sh- does hold um, a lot of what you shared to be true. Sure. Tradition, I think, does say, okay, Moses is probably the author. Um, you know, it's probably written in this amount of time. I mean, um, logically, that would make sense, right? You know, you have this grouping of stories in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And then when's it written? You know, shortly after. Right. You know, that, that's what we see with the, um, with the Gospels. We, we have Jesus's ministry happening, and then we see them um, enter writing and enter, um, enter written pages shortly after right. with some of them. Right. Um, now, the, the problem with this for me is, is not... Um, holding this as, as, as true mm-hmm. per se. Um, but, and to give a little bit more context for you out there, um, I um, have a, an undergraduate degree in anthropology from um, the University of California, Los Angeles, go Bruins. Um, <laughs> um, and while I was there, I took a lot of religious studies classes uh, emphasizing in um, ancient Near Eastern history and culture, uh, and you know Judeo-Christian uh, beliefs, mm-hmm. um, so much so that in my last quarter of of school, I found out that um, I was one introductory course away from a minor in religion, um, 
which at that point I was like, whatever, I'm graduating in a couple of weeks, <laughs> not worth it. Sure. Um, but so that is, that is my foundational background. And then I, again, looked into specifically Old Testament exegesis classes uh, during my time in seminary. Mm -hmm. um, and for any of you like wondering if, if going to school and taking these classes gives you more answers, no, it, it doesn't. Oh yeah, not at all, <laughs> not at all. Um, <laughs> it brings up way more questions. So that's, that's a lot of where I'm bringing these answers from. Um, or not answers, but bringing these, these <laughs> angles from. Sure. sure. Um, so the, the Israelite people for the majority of their history, uh, did not, um, write things down. Right. Th their storytelling was, um, was around campfires. It was oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, so <laughs> it's very likely that these stories were not written down until, um, later on during the exilic period mm -hmm. where the Israelites are being torn away from their home. They're being torn away from their tradition. And you find a bunch of other foreign cultures surrounding them with written language and written stories and written traditions. Mm -hmm. So that's when the Israelites first started putting pen to paper and writing their stories down. Well, pen to papyrus, but I see your point. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so again, tradition holds that Moses um, you know, wrote these stories down likely during the Exodus, maybe in their time in the wilderness. But we see a historical record that points um, very differently. There are some scholars who believe Genesis was actually the last book of the Bible uh, to be compiled and mm. put together. Interesting. And um, almost placed as a prequel to the, the rest of it all. Mm -hmm. um, and again, don't wanna jump too far ahead into Exodus. But the entirety of the Hebrew canon, at least, is usually focused on the exodus mm -hmm. and the exile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Genesis really just functions as a, how'd they get there? Right. Yeah, it's almost like a, a, a prologue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think, too, that it's uh, one of the things that is a little bit of a, an issue with saying like, yes, Moses definitively was the author. Um, and I remember my, uh, one of my Old Testament professors bringing this, actually, I think it was the same. So a bit of trivia for, for everybody watching. <laughs> so Jeremy and I actually had one of uh, the same professors uh, at two different institutions. So uh, this guy named Jeremy Smoke is a professor of, of Old Testament history and Hebrew. Uh, Jeremy took him at UCLA for how many Hebrew classes? Um, I took him for one Hebrew class and then two or three other ancient Near Eastern uh, history and culture classes. Okay. So he, Jeremy took him, took Professor Smoke at UCLA. I took Professor Smoke at Fuller Theological Seminary when I was in, when I was pursuing my MDiv. And he actually, <laughs> I took the hardest class I ever took at seminary from him. And that was uh, Hebrew exegesis of Exodus. So I had to read mm. the entire book of, of Exodus in Hebrew. Um, yep. So that was rough. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the things that uh, I will never forget Jeremy Smoke saying was um, he, it was in this roundtable discussion of class and he was just like, so 
who wrote the Pentateuch? And Lacoste like, oh, Moses. And he's just like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're just like, what do you mean? And he's just like, well, what about at the uh, at the end where it says, and then Moses died? <laughs> and we're just like, well, maybe one of his scribes wrote that down. And he's just like, well, does that mean he wrote it, or does that mean his scribes wrote it? <laughs> right. So right. yeah, it was it was a mind blowing revelation of like, <gasps> what? Um, yeah. But I think to echo something that you said uh, a little bit ago, um, I before becoming a pastor and and a theologian, I was going to be a history professor. So uh, I have my undergrad degree from the U University of California, Berkeley. Go Bears! Uh, <laughs> and uh, my master's from uh, San Francisco State. Uh, go Gators! <laughs> um, so then, uh, once I was called, yeah, whatever. Uh, once I was called to uh, pastoral ministry, then I went to Fuller Theological to get my uh, master's in divinity. So I have a couple oh, Thunderbirds. What is does Fuller have? <laughs> so it's funny you should say that because uh, I remember I was in a Zoom meeting uh, last week, I think, and we were doing our introductions, and everybody was saying like, "Oh yeah, I went to this school and this school." And I said, I went to Berkeley, go Bears, San Francisco State, go Gators, and then Fuller Theological, go Jesus. <laughs> so I don't know if Fuller has a, like, we don't have any sports. So <laughs> Maybe like a theological debate team? I don't know. No. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> uh, the point being, um, I, I have studied uh, extensively history and theology. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned coming out of those programs and degrees is how little I know. So you would think that once you go to an advanced school and a, a master's or a PhD level, that you would have some sort of expertise in the field. And, and that's kind of true. Um, for me, it was more about uncovering the fact that I know very little in the grand scheme of things. So I absolutely agree with you that like, even when we read the Bible, even when we study the Bible, I do not think at any point in your life you're going to get to a place of like, cool, made it. I'm done. <laughs> yep. I, I know the, I know it all. <laughs> right. And if you do, then you have a lot of other issues than just. <laughs> 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 so, um, okay. So now that we've kind of gotten the, the preliminary groundwork confused, <laughs> uh, let's move on. Um, so uh, Genesis, uh, I, I like to think in what's, called a meta-narrative approach, meaning I like to see the, the larger story at work. So in the book of Genesis, we have seven main story arcs. Uh, there's 50 chapters and seven main story arcs. So the first one is creation, which uh, covers chapters one and two. Then we have the fall, which covers chapters three and five, three through five. I'm reading off of my notes. So if I'm looking down, that's, that's why. I'm not smart <laughs> enough to remember this off the top of my head. <laughs> um, and then we have uh, the story of the flood in chapters six through 10, the story of Abraham in chapters 11 through 20, the story of Isaac chapters 21 through 26, the story of Jacob chapter 27 through 36, and the story of Joseph uh, chapters 37 through 50. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are, those are some pretty important people in Israelite history, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are, especially to um, the, the to this history to the genesis they are yes yeah what do you mean um so so again um the hebrew bible usually focuses in focuses in on exodus 
and your big your your big dog is is Moses mm-hmm. um, and and later on the other prophets but but by and large Moses um, so uh, Abraham Isaac and Jacob um, are all very important um, especially in terms of the covenant that Abraham makes with God right um, but also um, you know, building off of this idea that Genesis is a, a prequel, a little bit of, oh, this is how they got there mm-hmm. um, to Egypt specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are are the um, are foundational. I would say only, maybe not only, but especially in how they build Moses up as right. a character later on. Right. Now, Jeremy, one of the things I've noticed in, in my studies is, is that in Israelite tradition and culture, genealogy plays a very important role, right? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. So why, why is that? Because the reason I ask is because both Matthew and Luke, I believe, their gospels start off with a genealogy. Matthew, right. I think, traces back to Abraham, and I think Luke tra- traces back to Adam, or the reverse, one of those. Right, um, yeah. One of them is correct. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But the point being is, is that they want to trace Jesus's lineage back to these, these patriarchs. Right. Mm -hmm. So why does genealogy play such an important role? Um, (laughs) There are, there are two ways. There are multiple ways to approach this question. I think two big ways though. Um, Genealogy is um, socio-political, socio-economic, socio-whatever status. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this with you know the monarchs of English of English history. If you can trace your lineage to royal blood, you are a step above someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for Abraham, where his covenant with God is, your descendants will be as as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sand on the, on the beach, uh-huh. um, lineage is going to play a big part in that, um, in that covenant. Um, right. One, it is confirming that God is good on his word. Mm-hmm. Um, if there are so many descendants down the line, then yeah, God held up his end of the covenant to Abraham. Right. Um, as well as, um, kind of maybe even a chip on your shoulder where it's like, Oh, I'm a descendant of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Therefore at times, and we see this throughout the old Testament a lot. Um, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Therefore I have a certain entitlement to this land, right? I have a privilege to Absolutely. this place on this planet. And we see that especially at work in the two kingdom period of the Northern Mm -hmm. kingdom versus the Southern kingdom and the development of Israel and the intermarrying of Samaria that sets up the groundwork for the new Testament of why the Jews hate the Samaritans. Yep. Yeah. And again, to, to your point too, of like trying to tie your lineage into these patriarchs, that's one of the main reasons why Matthew starts with a genealogy of Christ to make sure Mm -hmm. that the reader knows Jesus is directly descended from this Abrahamic covenant. So he yeah. is the fulfillment. He's the long awaited King. So, cause same thing with, with David, like 
uh, both genealogies trace Jesus's lineage back to David because mm-hmm. the Savior, the Messiah, is said to be be from the the root of of Jesse, the 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 mm-hmm. from David's line. So yeah. another big dog in uh, in the <laughs> Hebrew Bible, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. So yeah, we have these big narratives uh, in Genesis because they are setting the groundwork for what's to come later. Yeah. Because even in the, the, I mean, Joseph, for instance, Joseph is another huge character in Genesis because it's Joseph and his brothers that mm-hmm. branch out and become the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. Israel is also another name for, for Jacob, for those of you who didn't know. Um, yeah. So the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel become the 12 tribes of Israel. And do you see that? Mm-hmm the 12 tribes play a huge role in the, in the biblical narrative. Cause like yeah. not only in the, in the old Testament and the distribution of land and the geopolitics of the era, all of that stuff, right. That that's all important. But even in revelation, when you see the throne room of God, you have 12 thrones on one side of, the, of God's throne and 12 thrones on the other supposed to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So like you, even at the very end of the Bible in revelation, we have this idea that the 12 tribes still play a crucial role in the fulfillment of this covenant, right? Yeah. So, um, so how we're going to be doing this is we're going to go over a brief overview of the book itself, and then we're just going to ask like big questions from each section. So yeah. let's start off with uh, the creation narrative in chapters one and two. The uh, well, hold, hold on. Okay. Before, before we before we even go there, um, can I share an interesting tidbit with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, circling back to, um the Israelite people being um, um, having an oral tradition, not mm-hmm. having their stories written down for uh, a good number of years. Yeah. Um, another um, fun thing to talk about, especially with these names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, mm-hmm. is that the Israelites are also nomadic for a good portion of right. Um, their history i mean until until they inherit the promised land that's they're they're nomadic right right um so there are also scholars who believe that abraham isaac and jacob their stories all come from different tribes Mm, interesting That later on are unified into one larger story one larger meta-narrative like you're talking about Mm -hmm. um when the uh, kingdom of israel is unified by um, King Saul. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, say there was one tribe where their patriarch is Abraham. There might have been another tribe where their patriarch was Isaac, mm-hmm. and even another where their patriarch was Jacob. And then it was the the uh, the the duty of the scholars in the in the temple mm-hmm. to figure out what to do with right. all of these competing stories. Oh, Tied to all together. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. And I'm sure that'll come up, you know, once we start talking about Saul and David and, and first. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. One of the things I hope happens during this, this uh, conversation is that we're able to point out like really like messed up stories. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> you, you said earlier that Genesis is a book full of your classic Sunday school stories. Yep. It's also full of stories that you have never heard before. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And often like you'll never hear a sermon on. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All 
Okay, so let's get to the big question for chapters one and two, the creation narrative. Now, again, mm-hmm. there's a ton of questions we could ask, like the, just a ton of questions. But what I've tried to do is I've tried to narrow it down to like the, the big, big question that comes up in reading those narratives. So for the creation narrative, chapters one and two, um, the question is, did it take seven literal days to create creation or is it figurative what what's the deal jeremy is it what did it take seven literal days <laughs> um that is a good question um albeit and this is my opinion of course um but albeit maybe a boring one <laughs> Whoa, um that's, that's, that's <laughs> <a spicy> statement <laughs> um i think among uh, christians you'll find a spectrum in this answer you'll find some christians who say um, yes, of course, it was seven literal days. Right. And then you'll find another camp of Christians who say, no, of course it's not seven literal days. Right. And any and every answer in between, uh, I'm pretty sure you'll find. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think at times this question and questions like it can often be more divisive than they are bringing people together. I absolutely um, agree. So was it seven literal days or not? I would say that maybe it, that misses the point. Mm -hmm. Um, What we see in the, in the creation narratives, uh, plural there um, in, in chapters one and two is we see a God who is incredibly um, intentional. Mm -hmm. We see God who is incredibly creative we see a God who um, puts painstaking effort into the world that is created, mm-hmm. not just for um, God's own sake, but so that God's masterpiece, humanity, um, red dirt, uh, Adam in, in Hebrew, mm-hmm. um, can be in relationship with God. Yeah. You know, the, the creation doesn't happen for God's sake. Um, but creation happens for humanity to be in relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and I think, go ahead, go, go ahead. for it. Nah. <laughs> Finish your thought. Finish your thought. Um, I was just going to wrap up that thought by saying, I think at its core, that's what the creation narrative is trying to tell us. Um, you know, we're given, we're, gi- we're given uh, a poetic, um, setup of a week long mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that functions for what it is, is it's a tool for us to understand maybe something deeper, something just under the surface of right. that story. Right. And there's, there's two things I want to point to in, in what you said, like, and this is, this is the conversation I've had with students too. Um, one is, is that the English language often is very restrictive in its, <laughs> in its approach. To say to, the least. Yeah, because Hebrew is, he, both Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and, and the Latin Vulgate all have different um, layers and depths to their, to their words. Um, so for instance, the, the thing that I um, think is a shortcoming of English is its restrictive nature um, because mm-hmm. we are very almost linear in the way we approach words. Um, so yeah. one word means one thing, one word means another, that, that sort of thing. Um, 
and that's not the case for all words, but for English, I feel like it's, it's pretty restrictive. So what I tell students is, is that the, the Hebrew word for day in Genesis can mean a literal 20, 24 hour period, but it can also mean, you know, an yeah. epoch or a season or a unspecified mm. amount of time. Like it, it, it's meant to, to be a tool, like you said, it's not to, meant to be the point of what's going on. Um, yeah. And I think what happens when we miss that is, is we miss the, the grandeur and the beauty of what's going on in the creation narrative. And we, again, we kind of boil it down or synthesize it or pluck it out of context and say like seven literal days. And that's, that's why the earth is only 4,000 years old. And all, all the, the things that come out of that is right. coming from a place of misunderstanding and, and mistaking the point of what's going on in the Genesis narrative. Um, because like you said, the, and this is the second thing I bring up with students is, is that the, the poetic nature of the creation narrative was never meant to be a solidified scientific grounding of the events of the cosmos, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, because I, I tell them this, um, I tell students, it would be like listening to the Beatles, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and then saying there is a literal woman in the sky with diamonds for eyes. That's because it says it in the song. That's the, it has right. to literally be that. And then when you do that, then, <laughs> then that's like, what? what? <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. You can't take something poetic and make it into a literal scientific uh, fact. Yeah. So. And to, the, you know, to, to retort on that. <laughs> Go ahead and retort. Um, there is also an element to this discussion where uh, there could, there could be a, a woman in the sky named Lucy with diamonds for eyes. True. Um, that was revealed to the Beatles by God. And we would never know. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is an element of, of where, where faith, uh, comes in. Right. But like you're saying, there is a very real poetic nature with the appropriate tools about the creation stories in Genesis. Right. Um, so again, was it seven literal days or not? Um, maybe. <laughs> maybe it could be, but again, like whether or not, and this is, this is what I ultimately tell students too. Cause like mm. this question is very impactful for, for young believers to kind of wrestle through. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what I tell them, is, is for me personally, whether it took seven literal days or 7,000 years, that, does, that doesn't change anything for me. That doesn't change my perception of who God is or yeah. why I believe or the faith I have or, or whatever. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. Like yeah. the, the point that I get out of the creation narratives is, is that, like you said, God created us to be in relationship with him. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, build off of that just even a bit further um in you know the, the bible opens up with genesis um and from the very start we find elements in there that cause us to pause and think and have these questions that come up yeah. um but if we can often i think if we can suspend those questions for enough time not ignoring them not 
putting them aside and saying these don't matter because they do. Right. All questions are pointing us to some type of deeper truth that yep. we're trying to understand. Yes. But I think often what people get tripped up with the Bible most is that there is stuff in there. There's stuff in the Bible that makes no sense out of context. I would, I would say even a step further, most of the things in the Bible don't make sense yeah. out of context. So you can find instances of you know, creation directly contradicting um, scientific methods that have been shown to be true. Right. Um, right. But there might be a larger story going on. Exactly. Than that battle. Um, or for instance, later on in the book of Judges, there's a whole lot of violence that can stand very contradictory to the love that Jesus uh, teaches about in the gospel. Right. But if you can take a step back and look at the context, there's something else going on there. Right. And that's, that's actually a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. So we're, we're going to definitely circle back to this when we get to judges, but mm. that is another huge stumbling block for a lot of people to, to come to know Jesus is they think that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as revealed in Christ are two completely different people. Right. And that's a huge, huge thing for people to, to stumble over. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's trying to reconcile, like, Jesus preaches love and, and acceptance and, and loving your enemy, but what about go off and slaughter the Philistines, you know? Right, so. right. Which I think can tie us to this next question which I definitely have some thoughts on. Whoa, um, what are you, are you reading my notes or something? It's like I sent you the outline or something. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. So uh, anyway, uh, that- Unless you, unless you had something else. No, 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 I, I think we, we pretty much covered it. It's like, yeah. yeah, I think the, the question of it, if it took seven literal days or not, I don't think that's, I mean, it is a question to ask, but I don't think it's the mm -hmm. most important question to ask. Yeah, because the answer to that question only leaves you wanting more. Right. And it, it just, it won't lead you to a solid answer. Right. So, okay. So then uh, moving on, we have the fall, um, which is found in chapters three through five. And the big question here that, that I kind of narrowed down is, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? And the reason I ask this is because this is the very question I had when I was starting to develop my own understanding of faith because if god wanted to create uh humankind to be in relationship with god and to, mm -hmm. to live in the garden in harmony and stuff like that why put a temptation there like what right. was the point of that like is god like sadistic like what's what's the deal there <laughs> this is right it's almost it's almost like just a sneaky like okay i'm gonna create this paradise but like ooh, there's this one thing <laughs> that if you do wrong Done. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? And how does it tie into what we were talking about earlier? Great question. It'll take me a second to get back there. Um, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> um, so, for an important building block to understanding the Old Testament, um, particularly Genesis, mm -hmm. is that What's a good comparison here? Um, 
Okay, we'll try with this one. We'll 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 try with this one. <laughs> um, we look at pop music today. Okay, mm-hmm. there's a certain set of agreed upon um, concepts of what a pop song is, or or if you hear a pop song, you might not know that song perfectly but you yourself have a, a cultural um, understanding. You have a, a language and, and I'm talking more than just you know, English or, or Spanish right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a language built into you to understand the world around you. Right. Um, that pop music or, or just popular, popular culture in general, a good majority of people have those same foundational building blocks to be in conversation about with each other. Hmm. Um, so I think of pop music or, or um, you know, the Mandalorian maybe, um, where the Mandalorian, you can watch the Mandalorian and understand it as just this kind of like spaghetti Western space uh, finds an alien type of deal. Spoilers, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but there is a larger context to it that many people have, which is just Star Wars, the Star Wars universe. Right. Um, and while you know you have the movies, you have books, you have the TV shows, um, you have the comics. Those are all telling stories um, in their own way. Mm-hmm. But there's this larger context for this is how star Wars stories are told. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. And, and I think that I've talked about this extensively in uh, the Thursday theology YouTube channel about the, the theology of the Marvel cinematic universe and, and yes. same, same thing. Like when you go into a Marvel movie, you, every single Marvel movie has similar storytelling mechanisms to them, mm-hmm. but they all link to this larger narrative going on. Yeah. And, and just to give a very tangible example of that, um, in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, you have, I forget what they're actually called um, right now, but you have the, the portals that open up in space that give you a jump to another spot in the universe. Right. And that's explained in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Fast forward, or maybe technically rewind, to Captain Marvel, um, mm-hmm. that tech that portal you just see it it's not explained it's not it it doesn't take anything away from the story but you just see it and you just have in your head oh yeah of course that is the context that i know Mm -hmm. um so all of this this uh, you know maybe nonsense if you if you're listening right now um (laughs) all this uh said and done um the Old Testament and Genesis are very similar mm. in that the ancient Near East, um, which includes um, Israel, uh, Babylon, Egypt, Mesopotamia, um, um, and a number, yeah, Syria, the, the Philistines. Um, um, I'm really glad I didn't say Philippines there, <laughs> the, but the, but the, um, yeah, <laughs> but but Samaria, Greece, even um, no, not Greece. I take that back. 
Um, uh, anyway, um, there's a way that they tell stories, mm -hmm. okay? That is common to that region. Right. So Israelite stories, AKA the Hebrew Bible, um, if you put that side by side with other stories from ancient Near Eastern cultures, you will often find, if you can decode it a little bit, you will often find that these stories are more similar than they are different. Absolutely. And, and I actually want to circle back to that when we talk about the flood, because yeah. every, every single major mythological pantheon that I, that I know of has a flood narrative of some sort, right. especially in the ancient Near East. So Babylonian, Assyrian, Egyptian, mm -hmm. all of them have a similar story yeah. in their mythologies. But yeah. let's get back to the fall, though. Right. Why, why did God put that tree there? Um, so uh, everything up till now has been a long answer for the short answer of because that's how ancient stories work <laughs> <laughs> nice um in ancient near eastern theology that's just how these stories work that's just how these stories function mm -hmm. um usually okay so and well this is maybe a good transition into the flood um because the bible does stand counter um to the cultures around it right. in a number of ways Yes. Um, yes, especially once you get to the flood. Um, but to speak into this question a little bit more of why did God put the, the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Um, because that's how stories work, because it's a useful <laughs> plot device, because, right. um, because that's what we have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think why else? It's, it's an explanation really um and it's an explanation of this question instead of asking why did god put the tree of knowledge of good and evil into the garden of eden the real question that you're actually asking is why did humans leave paradise hmm. yeah yeah and, and i think it goes back to what you were saying of like a single question that you pursue ends up causing even more questions right 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 now i actually think that yes i agree with you but i actually think that there's a a deeper theological tool at work here um and i'll never forget it because i again this is one of the questions i asked early on in my own faith development and uh i at that time i was being mentored and i, I still am being mentored but i was freshly being mentored by a, a man named marco ombres so shout out mm -hmm. marco ombres um taught me everything go for the stag go for the stag man go for the stag I hope, I hope he watches and he gets that reference. <laughs> yeah, he probably uh, won't, but probably not. No, probably not. Um, but I'll never forget uh, going out to coffee with Marco and and asking this question and just really, really wrestling with why why would God put this in? Because like for me, in my understanding at that point was God just set us up to fail. Like why? Right. That, that's what I believed, and I'll never forget that what Marco pointed out was this theological understanding and this theological tool of free will. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, what do you mean? And he's just like, well, think about it like this. If God desires for us to be in relationship with, with God's self, then 
we have to have the choice of whether or not to opt into that. Yeah. So the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil serves as a, a device, a, a tool, a, a backdoor for us to choose to leave, to opt out. Because yeah. if it was, if God had created paradise and put us in there and, and no, no chance of leaving or whatever, then it would have been compulsory to, to be in relationship with God. We would have had no choice. So this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil serves as a choice for us as humanity to opt out if a relationship with God is not what we want. So yeah. for me, that really, really rang true because it, it kind of goes to your question of like, well, why did humans leave paradise? Um, because theologically, we can point to the story and say, because they wanted out. They, they wanted to, to have it on their own terms, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there and there should be an element noted here of of what what true love looks like because love without um how do I say this this well um, love expressed one way with no uh, with no equal dynamic is just power and control. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Love without a choice is no love at all. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Now getting into the flood narratives, chapters six through 10 of Genesis. Um, I feel like I'm going to ask this big question, but based on what you've already said, probably not going to get to it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But the big question for the flood narrative is why did God destroy the earth? Why did God choose to start over? Because like I've, I've heard it described as the Noah's flood being God hitting the reset button. Right. So, which, uh, you know, if you look deeply into the the words we have Mm -hmm. in the Bible, um, it does say in Genesis, God was disappointed. (laughs) It does say God was, was upset with the creation he made. Um, so, so there is that we can't dance around that. (laughs) Yep. Um, but again, just to kind of chime in with the, the, the larger cultural dynamic, like you said, um, flood stories are common. Mm-hmm. Um, so why did God start over? Why did God hit the reset button? Um, you know, there's kind of a, the, the practical answer of, you know, God was upset mm-hmm. and couldn't bring himself to see any more of the, the destruction and debauchery that humanity had found itself in. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a practical answer in that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it points to the fact that things must have been so screwed up with human sinfulness that the only way to get rid of it was to flood. Like, I'm not saying that yeah. that's like, like, Oh, well that's the answer we need to accept. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying like, yeah we have to keep that in mind because I don't think God flooded the earth arbitrarily, you know? Oh no, not at all. I mean, you look at the story, you look at the story and humans dive head first uh, into uh, evil actions. Yep. Um, you have Adam and Eve, they're kicked out of the garden for, for, um, for eating some fruit 
okay, and, and lying to God. Their kids, one of them kills the other. <laughs> yeah, think, things now, escalate pretty quickly. Yeah, and and you think about this this too. Again, keeping in mind the the story at play here. Um, Cain and Abel, okay. Cain Cain kills Abel. Yeah. I, I always get those confused too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cain kills Abel, but like this came up uh, earlier today in a conversation with me earlier today or this past weekend, whatever. Mm. Um, death at that point hadn't happened. Okay. Yeah. So Cain, you know, whatever, whatever his, his mean of destruction was, he, he does it and Abel's dead. Yeah. Straight up. And this yeah. is, this is the first death that, <laughs> that anyone's seeing ever right. in this story. Right. So it's just kind of like a head scratcher. It's like, okay, that's messed up. But like, how much more messed up is it that, that like, you don't know what's going on, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it starts there and it just it goes progressively downhill. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> again, why did God start over? Um, because the stories allow him to because um you know humanity has a a good uh way of finding itself in in destructive patterns mm -hmm. um and it's it's almost like what you were saying too of like adam and eve get kicked out for eating fruit and lying to god and then their sons like commit the first murder and and mm -hmm. like death right so i would I would venture a guess to say that between chapter two of Genesis and chapter six of Genesis, there has been an exponential increase in the amount of evil yeah. and sinfulness yeah. in the world. Yeah. And to a breaking point. Yeah. Because um, we, see, we see very clearly that in the fall narrative, mm -hmm. humanity sins and God takes care of people. Yeah. You know, we see... We see Cain kill Abel, and God takes care of Cain. Yeah. Um, that, that's, this is not to say that they go unpunished, but they're taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, And uh, so there's, there's actually an interesting uh, note I would like to mention here, because um, one of the classes I took in seminary was a, a deep dive into Genesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when they talked about the flood narrative, the the other big question I could have asked is whether or not it was like a localized flood or a truly global flood, which again, kind of goes back to the seven literal days versus seven figurative days for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but the interesting point that I, that I wanted to bring up, and I think as an anthropologist, you might enjoy this. Um, I read an article in that class that talked about, it was an archeological uh, study that was done of the Mediterranean sea basin. And uh, they were basically saying that, uh, they found evidence of like agricultural civilizations at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. So they were saying like, oh, well, what happened here? So they, they did some more digging and, and did some more research and stuff like that. Turns out, uh, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago or whenever it happened, the Straits of Gibraltar were, were shut. Like it was just one big massive rock wall keeping the Atlantic Sea out. So the Mediterranean Basin was actually like pretty habitable like for mm -hmm. agriculture and stuff like that but there was some sort of cataclysmic earthquake or event that 
that uh, struck the Straits of Gibraltar and it broke open like a dam and it flooded the Mediterranean basin. Mm. So all of a sudden, whatever was in the Mediterranean basin was wiped out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just thought that that was an interesting archaeological tidbit uh, that I picked up in seminary. That is real interesting. So, um, all right. So we've talked about uh, creation. We've talked about fall. We've talked about flood. Now let's get into the patriarchs of, of Genesis. So starting off with, uh, as you described him, the big dog, Abraham. <laughs> no, 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 no. Abraham's not a big dog. He is, I guess. <laughs> Moses is a big dog. Oh, sorry. Moses is a big dog. Abraham's a, a pretty decent-sized dog, maybe a medium-sized He's like a, yeah. It's like a Yorkie, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. So I hope our, our producer and, and editor, Tom, can like put up some sort of graphic equating abraham to a yorkie that would help <laughs> yeah yeah uh, okay so abraham um we have a number of stories that come from abraham a number of different things a number of different yeah we answer i mean every every narrative arc could be you know five thousand different questions we ask but the one that i think people often fixate uh on especially when it comes to abraham is why did god ask abraham to sacrifice his son isaac mm-hmm. So basically, uh, the story, for those of you who don't know, the story of Abraham, his, him and his wife, Sarah. Yeah, man, dude had so many wives. <laughs> right. Let's not act like. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Abraham and Sarah, I'm just going to say Sarah. Abram and Sarai. Yes, Abram and Sarai. Um, they were pretty old and they were. They were very old. They were very old and they were barren. So they hadn't had any any sons or daughters and especially going back to what you were saying earlier israelite mm-hmm. culture and genealogy and and tying yourself into this this larger story uh was super important and yeah it it, it, it is what it is i'm not saying it's it you know justified or whatever but the family lineage was carried on through the son so the emphasis on having sons was super super important in the biblical narrative so the only way that your name would be passed on to generations that you would be remembered would be through your sons so Abraham and Sarai, or Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, had not had any sons. So there was, there was a potential that his family line would be cut short. So the, an angel of the Lord comes and, and says, like, oh, you're going to have a son. And they're like, yeah, right. Yeah, we're old. <laughs> yeah, we, we old. What are you talking about? Um, yeah. So then through a miraculous uh, event, Isaac is born. And Isaac is the firstborn of Abraham, so he's going to carry on the family lineage. Um, what's that face for? I mean, he's the firstborn to Sarah. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I, wow. He's not the firstborn. He is the technically oh. secondborn? Yeah. Yeah, behind Ishmael. Yep. Whoa. That's, that's another conversation in and of itself. Yeah. But anyway, Isaac... Actually, no. You know what? Let's let's dive into that a little bit. So All right. the angel promises Sarah, like, oh, you're going to have a son. And she's like, I can't. I'm old. So, hey, handmaiden, go sleep with my husband so that the covenant may be, may be fulfilled. So the handmaiden gets pregnant, uh, gives birth to Ishmael, who is the firstborn mm-hmm. of Abraham. And then Sarah becomes pregnant with Isaac. And then all of a sudden hates the handmaiden and Ishmael. So that's essentially yeah. what so anyway, um, Isaac is the one that is going to carry on the family lineage, and he gets to be, I think, like, 
I don't know how many years old he is um, when the story takes place, but God says, take him up uh, on, on this mountain and sacrifice him. So <laughs> how old is he? He's young. He's young. For sure. Yeah. He's young. Um, he's but, young enough to carry some sticks. Right. Right. <laughs> it could be as young as like two, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Nah, uh, I don't know. But the point being is Abraham takes him up at this mountain and prepares to sacrifice him. And as he has the, the ceremonial dagger in the air, an angel says, stop. So he stops. And then there's a ram over in the, in a thicket of, of bushes. And he's like, sacrifice that instead. Right. So he ends up not sacrificing his son. But the question is like a lot of people fixate on this. Why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Yeah. Yeah. Um, popular theology will say um, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac um, uh, for a number of reasons. One being um, to test his faith. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing with, with Abraham and throughout the Old Testament, but especially Abraham, um, test his faith. Um, child sacrifice uh, is a thing Was in the great. ancient Near East. Um, Molech, right? Not, Molech? Yeah. That's a, um, yeah, the, the valley outside of, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Is where people would go to sacrifice their children to the god Molech. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so we have to keep in mind for the people who originally told this story, uh, child sacrifice is, is normal. Yeah. Especially of the firstborn. It's, it's a, um, this is going to sound very crass, but uh, a sacrifice of return on investment. Yeah. Um, you, know, you, you, you know, God um, or gods, you've been good to us. You've blessed us with a son. Um, we will now sacrifice that firstborn so that you may bless us more. Right. Now, this is this is not outside of the biblical narrative either, because although we see the Israelites not like killing their firstborn, uh, the story of Samuel is is a similar story to Sarah. Yeah. Where Samuel's mom is 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 barren and she's being made fun of by her husband's other wife who has a bunch of kids. So she mm-hmm. says, if you bless me with a son, I will dedicate him to a life in the temple. So it's not out of the realm of possibility to use your firstborn as a way to say like, if you bless me with this, I will use my, the life of my firstborn for this particular purpose. Yeah. So yeah. In, in the cases of pagan cultures, it was like, oh, we're going to sacrifice this, this child as a testament to the greatness of our gods. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, you get uh, <laughs> in this story of, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, um, or almost sacrificing Isaac, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, directly following this part of the story, um, there's another um, element where um, Abraham and God make a new covenant with one another at mm-hmm. this point. Mm-hmm. And in ancient Near Eastern tradition, um, making a covenant you 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 cut an animal in half mm-hmm. and you walk through the remains you set them apart and you walk through the remains with the person you're uh making the covenant with yep um 
And the point being, the the I think the line that you say while you do that is, uh, let what happened to this animal happen to me if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant. Right. Um, yeah, and that's where we get the the lingo today to cut a deal. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Now, yeah, yeah. So so this this new covenant. I should use new covenant carefully. Um, <laughs> right. The covenant that takes place directly after the story of Abraham um, almost sacrificing Isaac is this um, is this covenant where only God walks through the remains of that ram in the right. form of a, a pot of smoking coals right um, to say Abraham you can mess up you can like obviously don't try to but you can mess up you can fall short but God is always going to be holding up his end of this covenant. He's always going to be holding up this end of the bargain. Right. And I think it was actually uh, Professor Smoke who said it uh, like, God will remain faithful even if we are un incapable of that. Correct. Correct. So um, I'm going to jump to the New Testament and then I'm going to jump back to how this story stands countercultural to. Um, uh, child sacrifice in the ancient Near East, as well as the flood. Um, so uh, another question of why did Abraham almost sacrifice his son Isaac? You can fast forward to the New Testament and draw the parallels of like, okay, Abraham couldn't sacrifice Isaac. He was told not to. He was told to stop. Um, because that shouldn't be something that humanity has to do. Right. But God, in his ultimate goodness and his ultimate love, he is willing to make that tough call in sacrificing his son, Jesus, on the cross. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a direct parallel there that can be uh, teased out right. uh, later on. Right. Jumping back quickly, because um, I know uh, we're probably <laughs> short on time. I was going to say, um, I'm going to call an audible and say, let's uh, divide Genesis into two episodes. <laughs> So uh, episode one will end with us talking about Abraham. And then episode two, we'll talk about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Yeah, we could probably skip Isaac, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, we'll talk about him. Um, can I, finish, can I uh, go for it, go for it. say the point thing? So I, I said earlier that while if you place the Hebrew Bible and other ancient Near Eastern literatures side by side, you'll find a lot of similarities. Yes, um, that's absolutely true. But you also find big important instances where the Hebrew Bible, Israelite theology stands countercultural to um, the surrounding theologies around it. Right. So um, Abraham and Isaac in this story, most other ancient Near Eastern stories would just say, yes, child sacrifice is normal. That's a thing. Let's move on. Right. Isaac, you know, dead. Um, Abraham is not at fault for that. Yeah, he's fitting into the narrative of other cultures. Right. Um, the flood is also an instance of this countercultural narrative in that um, many other uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, stories concerning the flood. The reason the gods flood the earth is because humanity is too loud mm. because humans are, 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 are too much. Right. Too um, much. Which you, 
Too much what? No, no, no. They're just too much. They're just too loud. Oh, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's it the the gods are up in in heaven just to kind of thinking to themselves like, oh my gosh, when will these humans be quiet? <laughs> um, let's flood them, and you know, we'll get some quiet. We'll be able to rest. Um, so that's fairly common. The reason being like, why did God gods flood the earth? The whim. <laughs> yeah. You know, they 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 didn't. But we see in the biblical narrative is you see God identifying his disappointment mm-hmm. and saying um, i'm gonna start over yeah because i care for humanity yeah. um yeah with the, with the the flood narratives of other other stories it's just why did god flood the earth because that's you know within god's ability just to say you know right. okay whatever boom you're, you're gone right. um and the, it's gilgamesh um for Babylonians who survives the flood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's Osiris you, and Isis that survive it for Egypt. I think. I could be wrong. Maybe. I know. Oh, gosh. I they, knew that one time. They, they survive uh, on a reed canoe. Yeah. Yeah. They got some other issues to deal with with their lives, though. <laughs> like being chopped <laughs> up in pieces, right? Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, you see... Gilgamesh uh, uh, cheating death fundamentally, mm-hmm. um, but what you see with Noah is God saying, "You are righteous. You are right. Someone who will listen to me. Right. You will preserve humanity." Right, and I mean, standing in contrast to other uh, mythologies around the world as as well, especially in the ancient Near East, you have God promising at the end of the flood narrative to never do mm-hmm. it again. Right. As- Others there's like, well, we withhold the right to do whatever we want. Yeah. Right. Now, something that I think, uh, as I've been processing through this question for myself of, of why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a bold assertion. And that is well, I don't know if it's bold or not, but um, that is I don't think God ever intended for Isaac to die. I don't think that that was the point of the story. I'd never think that God was going to allow Abraham to carry on his, his uh, right. killing of, of Isaac. Now there's a bunch of like comic strips and memes that I've seen of like, you know, what if the angel came a little bit too late and right, <laughs> right, right. That's a sacrifice. Like what? <laughs> um, right. I, I don't think the intention was ever for Isaac to lose his life. I think yeah. what's going on in this, this narrative, especially with Abraham is, is that God was uh, not only testing Abraham's faith, but testing Abraham's obedience to his, to his will. Because the thing that I have seen throughout the old Testament as a meta narrative is this uh, obedience and disobedience being a huge part of the story of like, if you are, I mean, if you obey, I mean, that's all that Deuteronomy and Leviticus is as well. Like if you obey these commands then everything will be well for you. God will be with you. God will go before you in battle. God will bless you. God will give you your inheritance. But if you disobey, these are the bad things that are going to happen. Right. So this idea of obedience and disobedience, I think what's going on in the Abraham narrative is is God is testing the extent of Abraham's obedience to him. Because yeah. if you if you think about it in terms of obedience, what 
what more could you ask for first from somebody than to sacrifice their only child and especially one that you and your wife have been waiting for as the fulfillment of your promise because again god says your descendants will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore and abraham's like we old that not happening and like yeah yeah and they finally have a little peek of it in isaac and then god's like oh yeah sacrifice him yeah. <laughs> like it's like it's it's so counter to the promise that god makes to abraham right so i think the main thing going on in the uh narrative of abraham is in and sacrificing isaac is that god is is testing his obedience mm-hmm. uh, so so yeah um so yeah we've been talking for a long time so we should wrap up this first episode <laughs> yeah um, so, um before the yeah. you know the, the the end end um as a spoiler for coming episodes both uh both of us are going to be sharing some favorite stories from um the bible from the book of the bible that we're talking about i don't know if we have enough time right now but um no yeah <laughs> i'll uh, i'll give you a little uh um sneak peek at mine mine is found in genesis chapter 14 and that's all i'll say on this episode all right nice (laughs) um so yeah we'll we'll share our favorite stories next time um if that's all right with you yep so uh now comes the part of the episode where we wrap things up and uh jeremy actually came up with the name for it and it is time for final call so final call um i'm gonna take one last sip of of the Weinhenstefaner Vitas. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to remember that name. Um, one last up of that. And we're going to talk about uh, final thoughts about the first half of Genesis. Um, and I'll go ahead and start. So you have a little bit of time to think, Jeremy. But mm-hmm. uh, my final thoughts are that Genesis is one of those books that is highly, highly influential to a lot of people's faith. And rightly so. It's It's the narrative of the Israelite people, how God created the, the world and, and everything in it. It, it. It's filled with these wonderful stories. And there's no, it's not bad to, to have these narratives inform your faith. However, it needs to be understood in the context of the larger narrative going on. Uh, for instance, the, the creation narrative being written in a poetic style. You need to understand that because if your faith is built on the literal seven-day creation, then all of a sudden when that's questioned or that's kind of not being able to prove it, then all of a sudden everything built on top of that comes crumbling down. So for the Genesis narrative, I think that it's, there's nothing wrong with having those stories be building blocks of your faith, but they have to be put into the proper context, uh, not only historically, but culturally and, and politically and, and geographically, all of that. You have to understand the context and put those stories into context in order to truly be able to understand it on its own terms. Nice. Thanks. So final call for you, Jeremy. Um, yeah, I think that the book of Genesis, um, is a fun book filled with family drama and lots of family drama and, uh, answers a lot of questions that we don't necessarily ask. Um, yeah. um, and in, uh, in, in, in that, 
we find that the book of Genesis, again, is a great storytelling book. Yeah. Pretty easy to extract moral nuggets of truth if we disregard a lot of other parts of the stories. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where am I going with this is the question. <laughs> that is a very good question. Yeah, maybe I just leave it there. Genesis is cool. Um, maybe holds too much clout at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can agree with that. And uh, for next episode, we'll dive into the second half of Genesis with talking about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Because um, those are the yeah. ones that set up the story of the Exodus. And the Exodus story is... I would say, and I think you would agree with me, Jeremy, I think the Exodus narrative is probably more important than the Genesis narrative in terms of Israelite thinking. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to try our tagline for this for our very first time on air. So let's see if it works. So you ready? All right. I'm Jeff. I'm Jeremy. And this has been our grain offering. <laughs>